Hey everybody, it is episode 20 of the Running Rogue podcast. I'm Chris, and as always, Steve is joining me. Hey Steve. Hello all, hello world. We are excited to be back at you continuing our series on mental training. We've had, this will be our fifth episode in the series. If you, sh- if you want, check out 6, 11, 13, and 18 as well. This one, uh, like the others, stands on its own, so you can listen to this now and then circle back to those. But each of those, I think, has a nice build-up to this and will prepare you in a different way. So definitely check those out after this one. Our last one, episode 18, was on self-talk and visualization, where we started to talk about the toolkit you might put together associated with mental training. And today we're continuing to build that toolkit or quiver of weapons, if you will. And we've got three more tools to talk about that you can put in your mental training quiver. Before we dive into that, like always, we're going to start with some current events, and we've got some local current events to talk about. The Capital 10,000, which is the largest 10K in Texas, happened this past weekend in Austin. It was the 40th year, close to 22,000 people, which I think, I don't think is an overall record, but it's certainly the largest they've had in a very long time. So it was a great event, perfect weather, 50, low 50s. For Unbelievable for weather April in Austin 23rd, right now. Dry, no, no humidity, and so the racers were blessed with a perfect day, and it showed at least in the athletes what we coach. Lots of PRs out there, and our rogue team finished as the fastest overall team, if you count the top ten times, which is how they track that. So, rogue running represents yeah uh, across all teams for the fastest team and our two fastest didn't even count for us i know yeah. we had some of them that either didn't sign up for our team or were being traders and running on other teams <laughs> for our various reasons so so we uh we didn't even have all of our best in that result but kudos to all that were on the team i think we had nine people under 39 minutes mm. for that top 10 and then the next one was under 40 so Congrats to the Rogue team, and let's talk about the front of the race. So on the men's side, Reebok joined the race as a sponsor this year, and they brought a couple of athletes from Zap Fitness, which is their post-collegiate training group that they sponsor. A couple of guys, Andrew Colley and Johnny Crane, were one, two, two seconds apart. It was clear they were working together. I know you saw them about mile three and a half. It was clear they were working together, and probably not going all out from what I understand about how they finished. Apparently they were high-fiving people on the bridge and through the finishing shoot. So they had a, f- a little bit left at the end. I think they went 30, 30, 30, 32, right? That's correct. not, that's reasonably fast for that course. It's still a real, I mean, that I think that the, the, uh, that course is at least a minute slow, could be even more slow depending upon person's fitness. But, um, you know, you know, 1992, I think I ran almost the same time. So <laughs> that's and not to say that I was running fast, and more to say that um, it's not necessarily the fastest uh, fastest finish that we've seen. Um, but it's very hard to get under 30 minutes at that course. It I don't is. think there's. Scotty Mack has done it, but very few. And have. then a Kenyan, another Kenyan that was imported, um, um, ran it. But if you, anytime you're in that 30 30 range, you're rolling for sure on that course. It's a tough, tough course. And to have something left and finish that way. Yeah, and they had one guy result. rolling with them. Raymond Joseph, I think, was tucked in there with them. And I saw them yep. at three and a half, but they put nearly 30, 45 seconds on him, I believe. So 
Um, yeah, he finished in thirty fifty nine. Raymond's a local athlete who now trains on his own, from what I understand, mm-hmm. but used to run at the University of Arkansas, Correct. so has mm-hmm. a collegiate background. Recently, he was in the mix for a while, but then they they said goodbye about mile four, from what yeah. I understand. And then a couple of other former Rogue Athletic Club members, J.T. Sullivan was fourth, not too far behind that, about 27 seconds behind that, and then Eric Stanley a couple seconds mm-hmm. behind him. Eric, who has also trained with us and worked for us yep. on our retail staff. He runs so the Trail Roots group, which yep. they had, yep. So a solid day for the men up front, and good to see those the trio of locals get in the mix with the professional elites <laughs> from Reebok. And then on the women's side, I would say we had a thin field at the top. Certainly, Jennifer Hall, who won, is no slouch. She's a legit and uh, very respectable runner herself. Absolutely. And manager, now manager at Ready to Run, another running store here in Austin. She ran 36.44, but she didn't have a lot of competition. Kate Lugers, who's run with us, was a minute back in 37.44, and Sarah Remmel, 38. 42 so basically a minute separating the podium on the women's side but generally you had a thinner field there at the front because a lot of the faster women in town did boston the weekend before so they were out for this race or rotterdam or rotterdam exactly yep. we were trying to twist a few arms there <laughs> to get we, some other women in rogue the field, has had a happen. long run of getting a w either on the men's or the women's field i think somewhere in the vicinity of six or seven years we've had one someone and uh in an offhanded way i thought about uh sort of torturing one or two of our athletes but we decided the better of it and honestly i'm not sure you know jen looked like she was out there on a on a training run and i'm not sure if they would have been able to roll with her anyway she had a really great race um and interesting kate lugers who got second she indicated to me after the race that she had no idea how close she was. And when I saw her at three miles, she was probably 30 seconds back. She ended up a minute back, but, um, I, she didn't know how close she was and she kind of kicked herself in the, in the butt for not, not putting herself in it, but it wasn't really her, her plan for the day. And so, you know, what a great day if you decided to go out and have a solid race and not bury yourself because the weather was just epically beautiful. Austin was in full regalia for the day. It was it was an amazing, amazing field. If you've never run the Capital 10K, think this. It's probably one of the tougher 10Ks that's available to run, um, but it is um, just an unbelievable spectacle um, of 21,000 people running up the Capitol. It's a really cool thing. Super and- cool. Shout out and kudos to Jeff Simicek, who took over race directing this race for for the Statesman, which is the producing sponsor. They've had the race for all 40 years, from what I understand. He took over the race a couple of years ago and has definitely brought new life. You've seen the numbers continue to rise. That was quite a festival at the finish. I was out there five runs post elbow fracture, just kind of enjoying <laughs> it and had a chance to to run for fun and then help one of our athletes at the end to a PR. But it was just such a great atmosphere. The weather made everybody smiling and happy and it was fun all the way around. So if you don't live in Austin and have ever done the cap 10, this is definitely one to come do if you have the chance to get down for it every April. And high five events does a great job of, of putting the event on. They did the really spectacular start race and finish and finish line post race area. Really cool. Yep. So let's switch gears from local events to international events. The London Marathon took place this past Sunday as well. 
And there were some fireworks that we <laughs> need to talk about, especially on the women's side. Mary Katani set the women's only world record, which, if you didn't know, a couple of, I guess more than a couple of years ago now, the IAAF changed the standard for women that in order to set a world record, you had to run in a women's only start. And you couldn't be paced by male pacers, for example. Paula Radcliffe previously had the official world record in 215 and change, but she had male pacers in Chicago that year. So, and then she had the second, still the second fastest time in 217 and change. So she still kept the world record when they made that rule change, but now she just lost it. And Mary Katani from Kenya went out blazing fast, <laughs> blazing <laughs> fast, incredibly fast. At one point, apparently they ran a 437 <laughs> mile in the opening miles. Came through 5K in 2.10 pace, halfway in 2.14 pace. So she was definitely getting progressively slower, but still finished in 2.17.01 to set the new women's, all-women's world record. It's just unbelievable racing. And incredible courage the way that she did it. Um, some way even say stupidity. Um, but it definitely said she was going for something special and big that day. Looked like she dialed it back after a little bit and realized that maybe... The sub 215 was not coming um, <laughs> as well. Maybe it never will. We'll see. But still a great race. Um, you know, it, and also the other thing that's pretty incredible is there was another woman in that race that went under 218. I mean, there was two 217s in that race. Yep. I mean, Tiranesh to Baba. That's just that's that's mind boggling to think. Usually when that has happened, it has been one off the front all solo. And it was really I mean, the people have run under 220 going toe to toe. And that was such an interesting race because Kate. Katie got so far. Mary got so far ahead, and Debaba started rolling her up. And I think she might have had a little bit of a better chance if Debaba hadn't gotten little stomach problems. You could see she was puking out on the course. Go right. sub two eighteen while vomiting. Pretty stellar. Apparently, their pacer Chepkoech has never run a half marathon. Even she's only done ten k's on the road and track. So they came through ten k a second slower than the pacers ten k pr. Wow. So <laughs> they went out blazing fast. That, of course, blew up the field. Dubawa and Katani ended up under 218, as now the only, only three women have gone under 218, if you count Paula. But then the next person was five minutes back of second. So 223 was your third podium finisher. Now, we've got to talk about it, because you have a result like this, and you've got athletes like Rita Jeptu... Jemima Samgong, who've run 219, close to 218, but not quite. They get busted for EPO. Where does Mary Katani stand? If You said unbelievable <laughs> to characterize her performance. I think this one has to fall in the unbelievable category, not as an unbelievable good, but unbelievable bad. What's your take? You know, I'm going to go fall back and on my old innocent until proven guilty, but um, you, I think you and I texted that afternoon or evening and I had to admit to you that um, it didn't seem kosher let's just say that it seems uh, for both those two athletes you know the the Dababa family is a little bit under a cloud at this point in time in my opinion already but um, as we said Kenyan marathoners are um, definitely under a cloud and this result is not definitely not not making it seem like they're all running all running clean so yeah. um, that's my take is um, definitely eyebrows shot up at, at the results and were, was like, holy cow. And the fact that two of them ran so fast was 
that is you absolutely unique and something we have never seen before. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, and, and here's my take. It's not, and I, again, we've talked about this before. I'm trying to educate people on how to look at these things because my, my first instinct is always cynicism, but then I kind of get to the place I need to be, which is more that a performance like this should raise your eyebrows, should raise your level of skepticism and say, if it's too good to be true, maybe it is which will cause you then to put it in the right context so that you think, well, that's an amazing performance, but put an asterisk on it until you see a little bit more history and track record from the athlete to verify whether or not you can believe in this result or not. So I'm not going to say it's definitively dirty, but it definitely puts that asterisk up. This is what I'm going to watch. Now, it also makes me look back in the field and say, okay, who else should we be cheering about? Because mm-hmm. you know, that's maybe, a common theme. You know, that you, yeah. Yep. So, and, you know, we've got to talk about Laura Thweet. Yes. Who finished sixth, first American, ran a three-minute PR, huge 225. Break, huge breakthrough for her. She's coached by Lee Troop, who's based in Boulder, who's a friend of ours. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, it had a big result when she got into marathoning at 228, but now with this result in London and getting sixth in a very, very stacked field, now I think she's seventh on the all-time list for American women marathoners, mm-hmm. so... She's another young, new-to-the-marathon athlete that, like Jordan has said, that we can look to to cheer for and hopefully expect more from as we move towards the next Olympic cycle. Yeah, it's going to be really exciting. Women's marathoning on the U.S. scale, we're right in the hunt. I don't think we're quite as deep, nowhere near as deep on the men's side at this point yet, but... um, that could be coming as well. So super exciting to see Laura have that result. Uh, Lee called called it, said she was going to run exceedingly fast. He was very confident in the prep that she had done and was certain that her head was in the right space. He was a little concerned about the level of competition. Um, that being, uh, and what many people consider the greatest women's marathoning field assembled in history. Right. And that means... I, I still wonder about that, given that Olympic Games are pretty important races. But given if you take the Olympic Games out of it, it certainly it was the greatest field assembled. Um, uh, so, you know, it's a, yeah, we, had, well, we had a wonderful one-two punch um, in terms of marathoning weekends. And Kellen Taylor should not be overlooked. She was the second female American finisher and 13th overall with a 228. Still a solid result, mixing it up with the best in the world on what some people would argue is the greatest marathon in the world. Mm-hmm. We're going to have debates yes. with our Brit- British friends yes. over that. Yes. But uh, but certainly the field was stacked. And so congrats to Laura and Kellen for representing Americans well. If we flip over to the men's side, we've got to talk about Bekele, who is the greatest of all time. We've talked about that. If you look at distance running from 5K up to marathon, he had said he wanted to make this a world record attempt, but he actually got beat by a young Kenyan, which is a theme we're starting to see emerge, where these young Kenyans like Karui, who won Boston, are emerging as real threats. He got a gap on him and then held him off in 205 and change. I think Bekele was just 12 seconds back, closing a little bit again at the end, but did but couldn't keep up with the younger Kenyan. And now Bekele's getting older, and you have to think, this may have been one of his last chances to really go for it. Yeah, you think you're pretty. I'm pretty sure that uh, he's not going to make it another Olympiad. If he does, he'll be 
I, I don't I don't think he'll make it another Olympiad. So now he's only got one thing to run for, which is solidifying that sort of reputation he has has begun to garner for being the greatest of all time. But I, I still think that uh, my argument is that he's not that, but it's uh, it, there's lots of reasons to say that he is. I, I was, it was a great race. I think Bekele ran into a couple of problems. He had uh, some footwear issues <laughs> in the race. It, yeah. Yes. Um, and, you know, when you think about the covering anybody that's run a marathon, if you have an issue like that, that's equipment-based. It's so rare to have equipment-based issues. But when they do rear their heads, they're extremely frustrating because there's really nothing you can do about it, and there's no way to will yourself through it. Um, but it also, there were some questions about whether he was wearing the illegal shoes. Uh, right. But it turns out Nike is stating factually that they did, they were no, there was no illegality going on. They didn't have this, uh, the, 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 the they cheater shoes. They didn't have the breaking two shoes on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think they were doing that more to defend themselves than, <laughs> than to worry about what his result would be. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, great race. But I think, you know, it's, I'm starting to see a pattern emerge in Kenyan marathoning where you're seeing them in their system sort of disperse of the older athletes fairly quickly and get ready for the new blood. So you guys like Karui and and Ranjiru who won London mm-hmm. and then another guy named Kitwara. A lot of these young Kenyans are coming up and being dominant and you're seeing the older ones kind of get put off to pasture fairly early because you do have this crazy breadth of talent there. But I also think that that's a, something we're seeing across the spectrum now. I think the amount of money that's in marathoning is is pretty it's bigger than it's been in ever there's more money in marathoning and the payoff for a big win is huge so it's going to push even american athletes to take the step towards the marathon much earlier i think 10 years ago alberto zalzar would not have had jordan to say run a marathon this early in her career but now the recognition is that um they can get they need to get at it soon, sooner than they did before. It used to th- you, people used to think that you'd lose your speed, you'd lose your wheels. Well, we know from training our adult marathoners that wheels is not the problem. Speed is not the problem. And so uh, I think you're going to see not only are there bigger paydays, which makes it draws people to the marathon, but also it, it is now acceptable sort of to think about the marathoner earlier. Um, and, and I think what the great thing for us is in America – that means we're going to be more competitive, more and more competitive as we do that, both on the men and women's side. So a couple of other performances to mention that weren't at the front. One is this guy named Josh Griffiths. Did you see this? No, I didn't. He was the first British male athlete across the line. Ran a 2.14, got the world championship marathon standard without an elite bib. Wow. Self-coached, no sponsor. Nice. Showed up on the line at London. Old and school eighties again was the best British man on the starting and or anything to you know to finish. So he's now gonna make a world team potentially. That's awesome. Kind of coming out of nowhere. So that's a pretty cool story. And then of course we've got to mention Gabriel Trinidad, who was one of our runners going to run London, who was in the back of the pack, but had aspirations to run all marathon majors, all six marathon majors. London was the last one that he had to do in order to get his sixth prong world marathon majors record but he went into it not knowing that he could even run a couple miles having back and hamstring issues surgery coming up scheduled next week on his back so he went there not knowing if he could do it and i think started pretty gingerly but ultimately caught his stride and 
finished pretty strong from what we understand with the help of a lot of rogues that were there to support him and his parents on the sidelines cheering. So we got to give a shout out to Gabriel for the fight and the heart that it took to get that done. I'll tell you what, I've known Gabriel Trinidad for a long time. I'm now in the position where I get the opportunity to coach him and he is as tough as they come. Uh, and that result that we saw there is uh, sort of a, should remind everyone that the idea, having a bigger vision and having a goal that's bigger than you are, has the ability sometimes to lift you above what you would be otherwise physically capable of. Um, tip of the hat to Gabriel Trinidad, um, did a great job. And also to his wife, I think, you know, there was a lot of questions about whether Gabriel was making the right choice and right. whether he was, even in the context of the race, family members and people on the sidelines were worried that he might be doing irreparable damage. Um, but I never once hesitated in saying to him, I thought he should do it no matter what, because when you set big goals like that, uh, they need to be accomplished. And, um, you know, the marathon took care of them. You know, the marathon gods sometimes yeah. wreak havoc and rain, rain, pain and suffering upon you. And other times they shine smiling at you. And, and Gabriel earned that, that, uh, that, that blessing from the marathon gods, I think. He did. Kudos to him. And it's also a healthy reminder that not all the good stuff is at the front of the race. So congrats to Gabriel for finishing and everybody who got it done. One final note before we switch into our topic. With, by the time this episode is published, the next weekend, so the weekend of May 5th through the 8th, Nike has announced their window for their Breaking 2 project attempt. They've got three athletes, as we've talked about, going for the sub-two-hour marathon in crazy controlled conditions in Italy near Milan. But that attempt will be happening next weekend. And so definitely follow along. And, of course, you know you'll hear all about it after the fact here <laughs> as we break down the results so check that out i'm still saying marketing ploy it, definitely <laughs> marketing ploy and working <laughs> but we'll see so all right let's switch into our topic as i mentioned we're continuing our series on mental training this is episode 20 the fifth in our series on mental training also of course check out 6 11 13 and 18 the last episode in 18 we talked about self-talk and visualization as two tools one thing I wanted to mention just sort of in footnote to that before we dive into our additional tools we're talking about today is on is a point on visualization, which I thought about after we recorded that episode, which is I talked about visualization in the context of an upcoming race. But I also wanted to remind people that that can also be important in smaller chunks in preparation for an upcoming workout even. So you might have an intense workout that you kind of star on your calendar, your training schedule as one that's going to be tough. Going into that and doing a little bit of prep, visualization prep for that can also be beneficial. So you can use that tool in smaller chunks as well. Yeah, and especially when you think about it in the context of the marathon, if you know the course that you're running, if you've got, you know, if, you, if you're running your hometown marathon or in you know, the case of Boston, Boston hasn't changed in ever. So, <laughs> well, in a long, long, long time in terms of its course. Yeah. And so you can utilize that, your training opportunities as prep, to visualize and then even within the context of the race using it as sort of active visualization or sort of exper experience visualization of like doing it and thinking it um, incredibly impactful um, good that you that you made that obvious because I do think that that's one thing we'll be talking about in future episodes about how what you expect um, what you think why well, we say frequently 
you need to be ready for what the race requires. And in order to be ready for what the race requires, you need to do training that will put you into those circumstances. And if you can visualize your, want to visualize your races, visualizing in your workouts is makes it even more practical and also prepares you for um, the kind of nitty gritty, as we said, it's not an easy process. It takes a while and you have to be willing to sort of quote unquote fail or, or not necessarily succeed in fully seeing yourself through the entire race to get better at it. The more you do it, the more you use that muscle, the, the better it, the better it functions. Yes. Practice makes perfect. All right. So let's talk about some more of these tools. The next one we're going to talk about is problem solving. I know particularly as it relates to your prepping athletes for Boston, you were using this tool to get them ready. So let's talk about problem solving in this context. What is it? How do you get people to think about it? So the idea of problem solving is that ultimately nothing ever goes to plan, right? Sort of, uh, what is it, uh, the... What's the Murphy's Law, right? right. That, this is a corollary to Murphy's Law. Murphy's Law states if something's going to go wrong, it will. Um, and this corollary is things do go wrong, prep. And so I like to talk to my athletes about um, getting into the mindset of preparing for what possible challenging outcomes or challenging circumstances could get thrown at them before they go into race. We sort of break it down into a three different chunks in the way we think of it. Um, the first and most important thing I try to do with my athletes is I try to get them off guard a little bit, get them to laugh and let them smile. I'll say, I want I want you to become a problem-solving motherfucker, right? Or a PSM, a PSM mofo, right? <laughs> so you want to get into that space where you feel like um, this problem, any problem that could come up, you're able to... Uh, overcome and, and, and conquer it. So what I ask my athletes to do frequently is to take their three different sections of their preparation for the race. I say from the time they get on a plane, especially if they're flying to a, a, a destination marathon, from the time they get on the plane, they need to come up with one challenge that could occur, one problem that could show up between the time they get on the plane to the time that they get to the race start. All right. So that's a pretty wide window for a lot of folks. And that those are things that examples of problems that could occur in there could be my hotel room wasn't ready and I had to wait longer. Went to the went to the um, expo. They didn't have my bib number for some reason. I had to go figure out how to get my bib number. Um, another thing might be um, at a ba- race like Boston. I have no idea how to deal with the fact that the race starts at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, as the case may be, and I've never worked on anything other than we're getting ready to run at 5.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, so it's basically coming up with a problem um, in that section. Then the next, what I asked them to do is then also come up with another problem from the start of the race to the finish of the race. Um, and And... Typically, what I ask them to do is to pick a problem that they're most nervous about. Some folks don't have that context. It doesn't really matter. I like to use the thing that you think get, might be most nervous about, you think might happen, because that's usually sort of highlighting a, a major challenge you have just overall in your running, not just in the race. Um, but it doesn't really matter, because what we're trying to do is to get you to be a, the ability to problem solve. Problem solving motherfuckers. Yeah. And then the, fin- the final area is, and this is the one that's tough for a lot of folks, um, and that's uh, something between the 20-mile marker and the finish line. 
the devil will get on your shoulder. Typically, the devil is your own self saying negative, nasty, terrible things about how you're feeling at that moment. What is the devil saying to you? What's that problem that they're saying to you? And how would you tell them to shut up, right? How would you tell that devil to shut up? I used to frame that a little bit differently and my athletes got really confused. So I decided to turn it into a sort of a devil on your shoulder because it's something almost everybody can work with. So basically what you do is you, you take those three scenarios and what I ask my athletes to do is to write them down Write the problems down on a piece of paper, one sheet of paper each, or if you're using a notebook, um, and if you're using a notebook, one sheet of paper each, if you're on your computer with some gap in there, and, and leave it alone. So write that about a week out from your race. Just come up with your problems, and don't answer them, okay? Really important to do that, because what you want to do is sort of steep in that, and I actually don't mind that sort of nervousness coming up, because I'm going to answer I'm gonna, we're gonna solve that problem. So if that's what they're thinking about, primarily is the problem that they wrote down, that's a great space for me to be in. Now for some people, they create many, many multitude of problems. But I still ask them just to create one because we don't wanna get into a too negative a space going right. into it. So then, on the, then if they're flying, this is the important part, on the plane, they answer or they solve that problem on the plane in, hit, in handwritten. I really like it to be handwritten. There's a lot of magic in writing with the hand. But I want them to answer that and solve that problem and write out how they're going to solve the problem in each of those three different categories. And then symbolically, finally, the last step is to do that before they arrive at their destination. So excuse themselves, get up, go to the restroom, take those, those pieces of paper, tear them up, and flush them down the toilet. By the time they've evacuated that problem is flying out over whatever destination that they're flying through, it is, it is now gone. And when they come <laughs> off that plane, they are a problem-solving motherfucker. And you would be amazed at how many times the pre-race pre willies, the nerves, the sort of negative energy that we create. I mean, we're marathoners. All human beings are superstitious, but marathoners are particularly superstitious. We get so worried about little things, and just the smallest thing can suddenly make us think that the marathon gods don't care or love us anymore, that the weather is suddenly terrible. It's like pointed at exactly you for this circumstance, <laughs> right? And yet we are able to solve all these kinds of problems very effectively on a day-to-day -day basis with no problem at all, but the nervousness and the willies and the, and the sort of pre-race conditions kind of throw us for a loop and get us into a mindset that's not really our best selves. And coming off the plane in a problem-solving mode, I, I, you'll be amazed. Yes, those problems almost never come up. The three that you patterned, well, the last one usually comes up. But the first two, they might not come up. It might be my shoe comes untied instead of I, I, I went out too fast or whatever the case is. But because you've worked through that one problem, you are eminently more qualified and more comfortable dealing with other problems that occur. Um, one of the keys to that, Chris, is that I chose three completely different areas of what happens psychologically to us in the preparation of a race. One is logistics, two is execution or strategy, and three is how bad do you want it. Mental, yep. So it's, those are three different areas, and by targeting those three, we really do a great job of preparing our athletes. I've, I've used this also with my elite athletes frequently um, because their races, while they are much, much shorter, um, the nerves seem to be much greater for them, the sort of the, the, 
they always seem to be disproportionately nervous compared to my adult athletes. And so using these problem-solving tools, and I would do the same thing, ask them to come up with problems in three different areas, um, it seems to work for everyone. So regardless of your distance, it's not a marathon-specific strategy. This is a strategy that is effective for every race distance and for every human being. The other thing I think it does is it puts in proper context what you're trying to accomplish. Because I think a lot of people go into a marathon thinking, if I don't run a certain time, then I'm a failure. You know, time becomes the only variable that we worry about. But really, and especially for the marathon distance, it's not about time. It's about running a beautiful race, as you said before, which is about overcoming the circumstances of the day, of the course, of the weather, of the moment, and dealing with it in a beautiful, effective manner so that you can look back at that say, you can look back at that and say, Given everything I was dealt, I did the best I could with it. I made the most beautiful race I could. You know, I think about my race in Austin this year where it was 80 degrees at the start, 95 plus percent humidity. Even though I didn't go in the fittest and I didn't have expectations, which helped me for that race, it, it taught me a lesson about marathoning, which is that if I can get to the place of just accepting what the conditions are, and then trying to run the most beautiful race I can given those conditions, that's as powerful as running a PR. Absolutely. To me. I, I, I think it, I actually think many races that are run beautifully will be, you will remember them much more than you will your PR. They're always, um, and of the ones that you don't, when you don't run a beautiful race, those ones, those ones are gut wrenching and they're really tough to deal with. Um, but I think also, Chris, as you said, this allows you to be to prep yourself for those kinds of conditions, for those to be able to take advantage of it. It's like a preparatory process, much more than many of the other mental training techniques we talked about. It's in in line with goal setting and in line with visualization. It's something you need to do on the front end to be able to have the ability to do the other things we're going to ask you to do in these mental training techniques. So let's, let's do some examples here. So, because I want to also understand what types of solutions are you wanting to see from people or are you expecting them to come up with? So if we take that first phase and let's say it's logistically related, let's say it was you, you couldn't get a dinner spot that you wanted because they maybe were packed or no reservations or there was a line that was too long. Right. So what do you want people to write down? What I want them to do is to say they wanted, I wanted them to come up with that problem first, right? That's important because they had to think through that. Then the answer is instead of going, <gasps> it's okay, what do I do now? Which we all do anyway. We all do it anyway. So I'm not really specific about what the answers are to these questions or the solve for the problem. It's that the problem is solved in a logical, consistent, and um, applicable way that's, that's in that person's sort of the way they're, their way they're cut out. Because right. a, a type A person will say, 
all right, I probably if I'm gonna if that challenge could be something that could be problematic to me, maybe I should create a second location where I could potentially go for dinner, right. or maybe I have some food products at home, some things back at my hotel that will allow me to have the flexibility to go back to my hotel without too much time. Sort of that problem solving now is create that ant that so that solution solved that solved for that problem now has opened up four to five different scenarios that you could choose to do, which one problem creates three or four different answers. Um, so now, but then the super flex person might say, well, I'm just going to sit here till my table's ready <laughs> and I'm going to have a, bo- I'm going to have a bottle of beer. I'm going to have a, a beer and I'm going to relax and I'm not going to worry about it because it doesn't really matter that much, you know, but for each person, what they're really doing is, and this is an interesting thing. When I ask my athletes to do this, I don't want to know their problems. Like I don't ask them to send that to me. I do tell them on that final point where the devil's on your shoulder. If they're having a real hard time getting a solution to or solve for that problem, I ask them to bring me in because I've got a lot of experience in that personally, a lot of experience that with many, many athletes. And I don't want to leave my athletes hanging when it's sort of who they are as an athlete is sort of on the line, right? But um, otherwise, I don't really want to know. And so I don't really know practically that often. Occasionally, my athletes will tell me, oh, I problem solved for X, but Y happened. Isn't that so funny? Because it's because it's just completely the opposite thing, right. right? And so I hear about them, but I don't really have a lot of user data in terms of what my athletes have done. I just know. I have never told, had an athlete tell me that it wasn't effective, and athletes now that have done it on two or three marathoning occasions because I'm doing this about 18 months now. Um, they are literally problem solving motherfuckers. Like they're excited to create new problems in their prep to try to overcome because it's empowering them, especially for your type A folks, which in my mind is 75% of my marathon in public. But. So let's talk about that last section. Cause I think the middle one is easy enough. You know, logistics are in the race. Maybe you drop a gel and you've got to figure out what to do. That- Porta potty's too full. You know, all I'm trying to do is drop the stress level with that one. Really that I can get my head around the last one. What's a good example of the devil on your shoulder? I fade with two miles to go every time my legs feel heavy and I can't close the race out. So that's not the mental preparation you want to be taking into a race. Repeating negative things. You know, one of the things we haven't yet talked about, we've talked about a little bit, but having mantras and creating mantras. And that's another part of my pre-race thing is patterning the brain structure to go through that. We'll talk about that at another point. But I'm asking them for a little window of time to sort of go into their deep core issue of the thing that they think might actually ruin the race for them and not be able to finish and wrestle with the angel in the sort of old biblical way of thinking about what Jacob did with the angel. There's lots of different stories about what that either, depending on your worldview, with that myth, that story, how it fits in the context of things, but it was literally, you have to overcome even your own best self, worst self, and you have to actually look it in the eye to see how do you overcome. And if you're able to do that, um, you're able to effectively silence that that negative talker that's going on. Um, so I would give an example of some of my legs are heavy. I can't close. I'm just dying. And I would suggest at that point either transitioning to mantra because you're at 22 23 miles you should be on mantra zone anyway number two if you if you don't want to use that because that's already in your quiver because we're going to pull that 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 arrow out later to utilize you might say um how do i turn those negative words into positive words right one body up catch one person um 
you're going to utilize the race circumstances around you to get that next result, to get the result that you want. And some one athlete of mine actually wrote that down. They didn't come up with it a perfect solve. They come up with a solve that basically was, I focus on the thing I can control at that moment. Because many people, when they've got the devil on their shoulder telling in this worst case scenario, they, they don't have an adequate answer for it. And, you know, I do think that there is a lot of other things that you, a lot of the other things we've talked about in mental training can help here, self-talk, visualization, working through those. But this, this wrestling with the angel is a crucial piece of racing. And again, an answer would be, go to your mantra, an answer would be create a distracting technique to help you get to the next place, to get to the next section of the race. Um, and another one is to just literally tell it to shut up, you know, cancel, 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 cancel. Exactly. With your best in your best robot tone. Um, you know, that one, um, I frequently have to work with my athletes on and I have seen every shade of crazy in that regard. And I don't mean crazy in the bad way. I mean, crazy in the good way of really, really starting to see people, Get, get in touch with the things that they're afraid of. And, you know, we talked about that a couple episodes ago about fear, facing fear, recognizing what fear really is. And fear is just an expectation you haven't realized yet. And a worry you won't, you won't reach that. Um, if you're able to dial in some kind of effective answer for your own worst fears, um, and you can articulate it and write it down and then tear it and flush it down the toilet, you're going to be significantly more effective in dealing with that challenge. Um, even if even if all you've done is a pattern a negative thing, you're at least patterning a negative that's eventually going to happen and you're going to have to deal with, if not this race, some future race. And for that one, I mean, one suggestion I always have on that type of problem too is do something different for 30 seconds. Physically, not just mentally, physically. It's like tra change your cadence, change your pace, slow down, speed up. Do something different for 30 seconds because sometimes that kicks you into a new rhythm or gear that helps you get out of that funk. I've helped people do that sort of as a pacer late in the race. It's like, okay, let's do this. <laughs> Follow me for 30 seconds. Yep. And then suddenly they kind of emerge on the other side feeling better or able to hold on better than they were. So that's one tip I would have for that specific problem. But to reiterate, the point here with this technique isn't necessarily to solve all your problems because there's more out there than you can really think of, but it's to develop the process of problem solving within yourself so that when something does come, you're ready to deal with any problem. Correct. Because you're a problem solving motherfucker. And the stress just comes down. Um, it's amazing to see once people realize they're not subject to the whims of whatever happens on race on, on, in the preparation of a race and in the race day, it's it, the empowerment is pretty substantial. And folks will tell me that they had an inability to keep their head straight and they would get really jittery and nervous and, you know, dry mouth and everything else. And that many of the psychological, I mean, physiological attributes that sort of show up with, um, 
with nervousness are, are minimized extremely. I wish I had known this technique myself as an elite athlete and in my years as a high school athlete and a college athlete and a post-collegiate athlete. I think if I had been able to utilize this method um, and had known about this method, it would have made a huge difference for me because I was frequently incap incapacitated in the hours preceding a race. And if I had had some effective method that was simple, basic, and person appropriate, you know, self appropriate, I think I would have been significantly less nervous before big races. It also gives you just gives you something to do <laughs> instead of being nervous, instead of thinking about what could possibly go wrong, kind of turns you into proactively for sure dealing with those things. All right. So anything else on problem solving before we go to the next tool? No, I do need to I needed to give a shout out to Carrie Heiner who basically is the one who uh, who made me realize that even though I said the term multiple times, problem-solving motherfucker, she uh, she used it in a social media post that she had so many people rally behind that and utilize that as a uh, sort of a hashtag, PSMF or PSMOFO. Um, it was very interesting to see that because um, I, although I say these things, I don't always know how they play in the real world, you know? Right. So um, I know how they play with my athletes in a real world, but I always feel like we're sort of shadow boxing or, you know, with a lot of different things. And so it was really cool to see that play out before Boston. And, and, you know, she didn't have the race that she wanted, but she went, she was, she's someone who's not a nervous, nervous person generally, but gets really nervous before races. And she felt so much more calmed by it. So it was really cool to see that play out in a real sense um, out there. And the people, it confirms that they're listening to you. Yes, they are. <laughs> Which is good and, and dangerous. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the next one. So, you know, if you're going to be good at problem solving and facing problems when they come, you got to be resilient. And so we're going to talk about this tool that we're calling resilience training or your you know ability to sort of endure problems and stay resilient through them. What, what do you mean by that first? Well, I got this idea and this concept when I was reading um, a book by the uh, by the sort of financial slash f f financier slash psychologist. I mean, a philosopher, um, Hasim Talib. I don't know if anybody's read his books, but he wrote a book called Black Swan Event. He talks about the Black Swan Event. He uh, wrote another. He wrote he wrote a variety of books that are sort of all about when the worst case scenario happens, right? And then he wrote it. He, the book he wrote in 2012 was called Anti Fragile. Um, and I read that book, and I'm not in, in any way, shape, or form in, in the financial world. I don't, I don't even know. I don't even balance my checkbook, right? <laughs> so, um, but I, I had heard that I had read a book of aphorisms that he wrote, which were sort of based on this sort of Socratic slash uh, Stoic sort of mindset of uh, of overcoming no matter what, like life sucks deal right so i was just interested in reading this book and i don't think i've ever read a book that had more flashes of like wow 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 in the sense that it came from a left field area that i would never have read before but yet had so much applicability to the running world and the basic idea is 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 that um his idea and his concept with anti-fragile is that you build up enough you build up enough you expect things to go wrong because if you're ready for the thing that goes wrong, you're going to be able to get through it much better. And he, he uses the 2008 financial crisis and housing market crisis that happened and how so few people saw that coming and so many people were pie in the sky dreaming about life being X or American dream or whatever instead of being in the mindset of 
what do you re- when's your rainy day and his idea is basically what's your rainy day scenario so i've sort of co-opted that idea that concept which isn't new it's definitely it was just the way i came to it and i have spent a lot of time reading about um the military uh, i spent a lot of i thought i was going to the military myself i wanted to be a green brave for pretty much uh, probably like 15 of my first 20 years i was thinking about going to war and being a warrior. So I've done a lot of reading about this subject. And there's a program that the Army created um, uh, 2006, 2007, um, where they've basically, through the University of Pennsylvania, they created an idea called uh, resilience training. And this is for military personnel to be prepared for, to deal with um, PTSD and other, other, you know, loss of limb and other injuries in a proactive way, rather than just dealing with the problem when they come back home and stateside. It's preparing them to be resilient enough to deal with those challenges when they come up. And these are huge challenges. I mean, they're like loss of limb, PTSD, these are huge things. Um, the school of thought philosophically that this place is coming from is sort of what they call positive psychology. I'm not a fan of positive psychology. It's, it's, a, it's a space that I think is sort of unicorns and sunshine and rainbows. Um, but I love the idea of resilience training, and so I've been using it with athletes that I coach now. Um, and it's basically the concept that that's sort of the, the where I what I mean by the concept. So, some practical applications for an athlete would be, um, for a runner would be, uh, you know, you have a challenge with running in the heat. Run a do a workout that's an hour later than you normally run, or don't not do a workout because it's hot. Now. It, it, it's choosing scenarios that you know will be a challenge for you and saying, suck it up, buttercup, put your nose in it, get after it. Because what we do in races is we frequently want our weather conditions to be perfect. We want our situation to be perfect, and we want to feel good. If you're not in your training preparing yourself to feel bad and to prep feeling bad, you're going to go through this process of not being anti-fragile. Not, you're not going to be resilient. You're going to be fragile because all you've done is do everything in a perfect perfect world situation. And prepping in every way that you can for bad situations and bad circumstances will make you an incredibly more effective runner. One thing that's interesting on this dimension is I once had an athlete ask me after a workout. She said, how am I supposed to feel <laughs> was basically her question. If I'm going as deep as I need to be going, how should I feel? And this is someone who'd got into running later in life, hadn't played sports growing up, so hadn't really been tested physically. Chris, that's an amazing question. Ever. That's an awesome question. Right. <laughs> and, <I'm laughs> like, and so it made me step back and, and sort of think, I don't even know how to explain how you should feel. Because if I think about my own experience, certainly I had some formative experiences growing up playing soccer and other sports where I got pushed into challenging situations and had to deal with it. And then gradually you kind of figure out where your limits are by going to them and then finding, you know, if I just go a little further, I can step over that line and get to a new place. And I know we'll be talking about overcoming limits in a minute, but there's sort of this process I've been through without really planning it to become more resilient over time and to find that hardened nature that she was kind of asking about in that question is like, how should I feel? And so my answer to her was first I asked her, how did you feel to try to get her to describe that? 
and then and then sort of said look I don't know how you should feel because I don't I there's no way for me to d- put it in words like it hurts but you know that wasn't really enough in my mind to explain because <laughs> she was clearly hurting too you know but but I just told her I was like it's it's a process of self-discovery essentially to figure out what your limits are and to figure out if you can push them a little further and you have to go to dark places frequently in order to find and test those limits. And so what we're talking about here is essentially seeking out situations that are difficult and that you know are going to test you so that you can build resilience. But I don't think it's something I, d- I don't think it's something that happens overnight. I think it's a process. Well, first of all, it's a decision. Okay. That's the most yes. important thing. You have to decide that and and in an answer to the person that you were talking to i would say to her first of all you know you just don't know and if you say back to me at that point i really don't know well you're not training hard enough you're not pushing far enough you're not challenging yourself enough and you're in a comfortable space and you're not willing to push outside the boundary of what you think is physiologically appropriate for you Um, because let's make no bones about it you're not going to run 5,000 meters in a workout continuously to prepare for a 5k race you're not going to run 10,000 meters continuously with no rest recuperation or, or recovery or no fluctuation of pace to prepare for a 10,000 meters. And you're certainly not going to run 26.2 miles at your marathon goal pace in preparation for a marathon. So we're in the unknown, period. And we are never going to train you all the way to the level of exactly what you're going to experience in a race. Because to do so would be to run the race. That's not training. That's racing. Which, again, makes the argument for multi t- many times racing and having many as many racing experiences as you can before races. But the way that you do prep for that is to put yourself in very difficult situations. The athletes that I coach, believe me, they're working on resilience training consistently. <laughs> because as one of my athletes told me today, he has recently been training in another group for three to six months. He loved that group. He had the, one of the better results that he's had in a long time. And he came back to me and said, that group never pushed me over the edge and never took me to the edge. And so I feel like I wasn't overtrained and I was ready to go and I was ready to prep. And I'm like, killer. That's so awesome that you did that. It's fantastic. He said, well, I think that maybe we should do that this next training cycle when I'm running with you. And I said, there's no fucking way that's going to happen. Because at that, because now you have a new set point, and now you need to be challenged. And if you're not challenged physiologically and mentally and psychologically, then you're going to buckle in the race. And the only way you don't buckle is to put more resilience in. Now, if that athlete would come back to me and say, Coach, I've got other ways I want to create resilience training, okay, let's line them up. Let's decide what we're going to do about that. You know, I have an athlete who in this next cycle who's over the summer going to do a bunch of, bunch of adventure races. And she's like, how do I get ready for that? It's super simple. You tell me the exercises that you think you're going to have to do. And at the aid station, you go over to the freaking field and roll around in the dirt and do push-ups and push-ups and do whatever the heck you have to do and then keep running your run, right? I don't know, but put yourself in the, men- in the place physiologically and mentally that you're going to be in the race as close as you possibly can, never to failure, right? But you do that and you do it voluntarily. And I think that's the very first important 
and point of this idea is this is a voluntary thing. When you get out on a hot, when you show up at at 530 in the morning in the summer for a hard, long workout at Rogue, the weather is, sorry, you don't get resilience points for that. You showed up because that's what's on the schedule, right? You're looking for other scenarios to take it to the next level to prove to yourself that you're worthy and capable of getting the job done when trouble happens. Another thing about resilience that's really interesting, there's another whole flip side to it, okay? A lot of this is sounding sort of proactive, right, on the front. But the most important part of resilience is actually the fact that the, that the military talks about, its ability to rebound. It's not that it's not prepared. You can never be fully prepared for every circumstance, but it's understanding that not being prepared and yet being resilient enough to bounce back from that situation. Let's say in a marathon, what do I say all the time? There's a rule of three. If you get at the half marathon and you're a minute ahead, you're gonna end up three minutes behind. A resilient athlete will say, Steve has that rule, but maybe I can break that. Maybe I can be the one that can break it. It is what it is at this point. What can I do to fix it, right? It's not that the, the cake is the cake fell. It, I, can, I can still make this a great dessert. I can still do something with this. So I do think that's an important part that I'm, I'm talking about the proactive capabilities. But, but there's also that sort of occasionally in your training and in your, and in your life, when the negative stuff comes up, to say to yourself, I'm a problem-solving motherfucker. I'm a resilient human being. Watch me bounce back from this issue. I think we've used the term or phrase, embrace the suck. Yes, <laughs> that's... Yes. And it's this decision to reframe bad circumstances as positive ones because it's going to make you stronger and ultimately faster when it comes down to race day. Because of it, I have a phrase i use it with my group when the weather's bad because i have a wednesday morning group occasionally you get overnight thunderstorms and invariably you have a smaller group those weeks <laughs> but i remind them that the morning show is always on <laughs> which is the name of my group yes it's always on there's never a week where we miss and so if it's raining or if it's whatever snow sleet whatever we're going to be here and if we can't go outside because of lightning we're going to be doing something in here as a result so embrace whatever comes at you now let's talk about practical application for a second i'll use one example and i'd love to hear more from you, you know, we have a good friend of ours who trained with us who's also been on this podcast paul terranova races a lot of trail ultra marathons 100 plus milers I don't think he's doing Western States this year, but it has the last several years. And Western States is notoriously hot. Usually starts cool in the morning and then they get to melt early. But then by the time the middle of the race happens, you're over 100 degrees through some really arid terrain there in California. And the month to six weeks before he shows up at workouts when it's not quite summer here in a couple layers of long sleeves and a beanie on. And, try and, and full tights. And full tights off. Thick full tights. To try to <laughs> simulate those conditions that he's going to face on race day. So he's heat training in a sense, but he's also training for the mental aspect of being at mile 75. It's 100 degrees and you just want to slow down or quit. So what are some other examples? Um, another example would be, um, you know, we had a, I had an interesting scenario that I thought through. One of my athletes who ran at Boston said... Um, and here's here's one that I haven't implemented, but I think I will in the future. And it was a suggestion for one of my athletes, which was, can we do a workout 
starting at 10 o'clock um, in the morning for our, our long run because it's notoriously hot in Central Texas. <sighs> just just point at the calendar. Yep. It will be hot in at 10 o'clock. And if it's going to get hot, it's going to get hot by 10. And if we started a workout at that time, um, then you would be in a position where you would be much more capable of handling at least at least the psychological trauma of dealing with the heat like that. The challenge you have is how do you, when you do resilience training, um, when you do this callousing effect, is at what point in time are you just suffering just to suffer? Because I'm not a fan of suffering for suffering's sake. Suffering should always have a point and there should be, you may not have to be particularly applicable, but you should have some reason for it. Um, so one example would be like that, to, to choose to do a training session at a time that's not uh, appropriate. Another thing we do in our Boston prep, we do it every year. We only do it in the fall. People think we're absolutely crazy. Um, we do a 30-mile run with no nutrition. I am, I am in some small sense training the physiology to be able to run off of fat fuels, and I can give a reasonably articulate answer for why we are physiologically doing the activity that we're doing. But I will tell you straight from the heart, 85% of the reason I'm doing that is because I want them to get to a dark place and to figure out how to figure that out. Because they're not going to get to a place like you do late in the race where your brain doesn't function, you can't do math, you're losing your business, whether physically or mentally, and you can't keep it all together. And that workout simulates some sort, gives me an opportunity to perhaps get to that place where I wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. Yeah, a lot of other people who hear that we do that workout think that we're crazy as hell. Crazy as hell is a huge benefit. It's always good to be crazy. But it's also important for those athletes to have gone through that. And they all walk away from that. You know, I tried to walk away from that workout once already. And you you particularly pulled me back in and said, Steve, we need to do this. And I'm like, okay, quit thinking about the physiology and start thinking about the psychology. Yeah. It's an important piece, you know. Yeah, those are two things you might do. And I'll give one more example, which is that and again, you have to choose all of these battles carefully because you have to be able to recover from whatever suffering you put yourself through. But occasionally when I get somebody who struggles late in a race mentally or might struggle hitting certain paces, maybe they can do the workout equivalents, but they can't actually execute on it in race day, then we'll plan build races where I intentionally send them out with a plan to go too fast, to kind of go faster than they normally would if they were being really fully smart about it, right? To put them intentionally in a place where they have to deal. And, you know, sort of like, okay, we're going to throw you into the pool and see if you can swim kind of a scenario. And oftentimes that's when people figure something out because it's like suddenly I didn't have a choice but to figure it out. And then they find new ways to mentally deal with that and then figure out that hey this pace isn't so bad i can't hold it if i just you know relax and let myself kind of mentally accept it so that's yeah. another example that i'll i will sometimes use with my athletes carefully yeah half marathon pace in the first 10 miles um of a long run will get you there quick that's <laughs> right. a that's a that's a guaranteed allison maxis who's been on the show we just did our final race prep workout for a marathon that she's running we, we we switched horses in midstream which i don't always recommend when we moved from a half to a, a marathon she's going to run here soon and um we did that um another example from my own life i just had this i just had this conversation with a friend of mine and this is another example how 
also your 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 resilience training can also really easily be focused in an area that has nothing to do with running and i think frequently when we talk about what it means to overcome and to be the best you you can possibly you can possibly be it's almost more effective in outside the running world and i'll give an example of myself when i was in high school um about my sophomore year i had a i was a, i was training for the the 5k in cross country and the mile and the half the mile and the two mile in track and I was pretty precocious as a runner. I was, ran a lot and really fast when I was a little kid. But when I got to high school, I realized I was running right up against the fastest in a really fast state. Texas is really fast. I was a 5A kid. And, if, you know, at that time, 5A was the largest school, school there was. And I was running against a lot of really fast, well-trained people. And I was not the fastest guy that there was. And I, 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 I ended up running at my cross-country state meet my sophomore year. I threw myself on the ground in the middle of the race in an epic choke move that had I had, I pretended I tripped, and then I got up and I cried and I whined and I ended up coming across the finish line right, and after that race, my father did me a great service. He said, I s tried to argue with him about what, he was mad at me and said that I he thought I choked and I said I didn't choke I fell, and he said but when you fell you didn't get up and go chase, why didn't you go chase? And I couldn't say anything because I knew I choked. So um, that day I decided I have to do something different, right? So I decided I, I, I decided I was going to do pull-ups. And pull-ups have no relevance in the running world whatsoever. But I got myself to the point, and I just picked a number. I just said, I want to do three sets of 30 pull-ups. Anybody who's done pull-ups, you'll know. That's a lot. Three sets of 30 pull-ups is a lot. And I said, I'm going to do it every single day. <laughs> and I will not go to bed until I do every single one of them. Um, I, I didn't, I was at least gentle enough with myself to give myself two to three months to get there, but the human body is pretty amazing. And I got to the point where I could do three sets of three, three sets of 30 pull-ups. And when I say 30 pull-ups, I mean 30 straight, like well, not stopping. So you, it took me a little while to get there, but I weighed, you know, 130 pounds and I was five foot seven. It was pretty easy to get, it, it was not incredibly difficult to get there. It is a difficult goal. It has to be something very difficult. But um, I got there. The hardest part then was I then did it. I can't tell you the number of days in a row, but I did it every single day between then and the time I graduated and when I ran my last race, which was to win the high school state championship in the 3200 meter. And I totally know that the reason I was able to follow my plan, execute, through the course of those 3,200 meters and over the last 100 meters overcome people in the race and win the race was because I had done three sets of 30 pull-ups. And I believed in myself and I knew I could do something that was crazy. And anytime I ever told anybody that I could do that and I would do that, they all thought I was crazy. And believe me, there were many nights where I laid in my bed where I was literally in bed at 11 o'clock and saying, I'm not gonna go do my pull-ups. Because anybody that knows me knows I am not a disciplined person. It is not in my nature. But I had made a commitment and I had followed that commitment enough that I knew if I missed that day, I wouldn't have a chance. And so I created a resilience plan for myself that, that made me a much better athlete, even though it had zero to do with the actual specificity of my race. I'm not recommending that anybody go out there and pick three sets of 30 pull-ups necessarily. But to me, it resonated and it worked and it got in my head and I stuck with it. So... 
it doesn't have to be running related. It can be something else. And frequently we should be choosing both running related things and non-running related things to check our metal. Because you know, Chris, at the last 10K of a marathon, it really isn't your physiological preparation. It's how bad do you want it and how much have you suffered for your art and how much have you do you feel you're worthy of the thing you want? And if you've done that, you've checked the boxes off consistently and you know you've checked them off and you've checked off boxes that were totally crazy, you're much more capable of doing the thing you said you wanted to do. So it can be an act of discipline outside of running. I like that. I remember that reminds me of Dick Beardsley. Apparently when he was training for the race that became Duel in the Sun with Salazar, he would sit on his couch between runs and pound his quads I heard that. I with story. his fist until they were bruised. I think, he, and he would say partially because he thought it would make his quad stronger for, for the, the ultimate yep. downhills and uphills of Boston, but also simply because it just made him a tougher person, just literally pounding bruises into himself. And he would do it religiously as a way to believe that he could be strong enough to win that race. So it's interesting that it can be something outside of running as well. I think the level I think there's a word there Chris that's so important you have to be crazy for your goal. It is not sane. It is not rational. It is not normal. And the race itself we already know this. We 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 champion this about the marathon distance specifically. But each one of these races have their particular challenges. I think a well-run 5k could be even harder than a well-run marathon, honestly. But you you have to be crazy for the thing you want. And choosing other things outside of running that make you remember you're crazy and make you remember that you're a wild animal which we really were first and not a domesticated uh nine to fiver but but did what needed to get done in order to feed yourself and your family and the and and your tribe the more we can can connect with that the more we can be resilient or not fragile or anti-fragile as talib said the better we're off so we talked about problem solving, and now we've talked about resilience training. The last tool we're going to talk about during this episode is overcoming limits, sort of taking the work that we've done to become a problem-solving motherfucker and build resilience to then pushing beyond what you thought was possible. So in the context of this, what is overcoming limits? What's the tool? Well, first, it's a philosophical approach. So I think that this is important for people to understand. Um, every athlete that I coached at the University of Texas when they first showed up on campus, I would tell them um, that they could be as good as they wanted to be. Now, how does that relate to overcoming limits? I knew that if they could articulate to me what they wanted to be, or they could even think clearly enough in their own brains, as a freshman, at a four to five year university with mostly continuity with coaching staff and with love and support and finances, financial safety net and medical and everything that happens in a collegiate environment. I was, I was very confident that we could get them wherever they chose to go, but they had to choose that they had to see they were capable of it. So the philosophical point here first is to say dream, dream, dream then find the limits so once you've once you've dreamt the big dream as we've talked about in our other parts of this process 
you are limited by what you conceive. You are limited by what you can see yourself doing. You are limited by what others in your training group or environment tell you are the limits. Let's just take Paula Radcliffe, for example. You want to talk about overcoming limits. Clean or dirty? 215? Two, one, two, 217s? Before any other human being had ever gone under 220? In the early 2000s. This was this is, 15 this is, plus years this is, ago. There are no fucking limits whatsoever. It, 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 is, it, is a, it is wide open. And that, to me, Paula Radcliffe is the exact epitome of no limits. Truly saying... Who knows what the physiological boundaries are? And in my opinion, that's why I still conceive that it's potentially possible that Paula was clean because she was thinking so far out the box, out of the box. She's so much overcoming what are perceptual limitations on what a woman could do. That result is so aberrational off the chart. It's like the mom picking the, picking the car off their child. They, she just did it because she's, didn't think that she couldn't do it because it had to be done. And I think that in our worldviews and in our, the way that we philosophically pattern who we are as people, we just listen to the crowd too much. My training group, I sometimes wish that they met me and worked with me individually instead of as a group. Because if they would spend time with me and hear what I told them was possible, or they had me put my arm around them and say, you can be as good as you want to be, which I can't say to an adult in all, in all honesty. <laughs> I mean, you can at that point. They're patterned in a way different place than my college athletes were. They still can, but they've got a lot more work to do, and it's a little bit inappropriate, right? There's a little, it's not inappropriate. It's a little hard for them to get and to a conceive. A lot more of. layers Correct. Of, of challenges. Correct. But each one of those layers, as you just brought up, Chris, is a limit. And the job is to, number one, philosophically and mentally and p picture where you want to be and how you want to be there and believe you can get there. And then start to r write down physically and think through the things that are stopping you from do it, doing it. And then look at those things that are stopping you from doing it and tackle the things that are manageable. So I, one of the key components that all of my athletes have a problem with is that they don't get anywhere near enough sleep. Our world is busy. It's crazy. We have families. We have busy jobs. We have everybody that I coach is a type A. They're not type A, but they're a high-achieving human being. And they don't sleep enough. I will tell you that of my Team Rogue participants, 100% do not get optimal amount of sleep. I, that is not an exaggeration. If I could tell you 110%, that would mean I had <laughs> 10 ghosts, but those aren't getting enough sleep either. Like, that is for sure. You want to limit you want to overcome a limit? Number one, overcome the limit of getting enough sleep. Line out those things that you can do. Now, in your case, Chris, you've got a, a, a big family, lots of kids. You've got a busy lifestyle for you and your wife. That might be not be something you can overcome. That's a limit that might be a little bit hard built in. So pick a different one, one that you can control overcoming whatever limit there are. Design that, line them down, write them down, determine what they are, and then say which ones of these are low-hanging fruit. And start picking the low-hanging fruit. Picking the limits that you know are manageable. Diet. Totally manageable. Some hard things to manage, but manageable. Sleep. Manageable. Creating cross-training opportunities or strength training opportunities that will make you a better person. To start off with, we can talk about all those things as being important things to do. 
This is why mental training is so important, Chris. But you already have a limit. So I can tell, not, not you personally right now, <laughs> right, but right. everybody who's listening, you have a limit. You have lots of limits. And most of them are full of shit. Most of them are not real. They're just either you created them or your environment created them. And if you can line them up and you can write them down, you're going to be in a much more proactive place to start calling it out. There's a reason why alcoholics say, I'm going to go to AA meetings and say, I'm an alcoholic and let me tell you my story. And I'm a li- I, every runner or every person should say, I'm a self-limiter and here are my limits. <laughs> right? And Because if you see them, then you begin to say, wait, this is manageable. This is doable. I can, I can do something about this one. And then that ball starts to roll. There's something about our culture, too, that promotes this, that somehow gets us to tell these stories about ourselves that become, there's ultimately really just excuses, but they're convenient stories. For me, four years ago, I remember sitting down to a goal-setting session with Lululemon, of all places. I was an ambassador for them for a while, and I had this goal-setting conversation with them, and their question was, why not me? You know, so a lot of times we frame things as, you know, it can't be me because X. Then they said, well, why not me? And I didn't expect to walk into that goal setting session and get anything out of it because, you know, I'm a coach. <laughs> I talk to people about goal setting all the time. <laughs> but I actually walked away with this huge epiphany, which was that I had created this story about myself as an athlete at the time because I had just had my third kid. And I'm involved with a small business as an owner. Got a busy wife who also works. And we have a lot going on. That I essentially told myself that because of all of those reasons, my fastest times were behind me. Or in other words, had already happened. And oddly, I thought in my head, the dialogue was that's okay. Because, you know, those are valid reasons. You know, prioritizing family prioritizing a business that you're passionate about. Those are all valid reasons that anyone would accept for me to not get any faster ever. But at the same time, in that goal setting session, I had this realization that it was all bullshit, that those were convenient stories I was telling myself that were then creating limits for me to actually achieve my fastest time. And so I actually went through this process of kind of identifying what are the constraints in my life that would prevent me from being the fastest self I could be and then doing what you said which is kind of systematically systematically kind of attacking the ones I could attack because I I realized too walking out of that that I had control over all of that stuff and I knew exactly what I needed to do I just had to go do it one of them was very simple it was I was not being consistent about my Monday runs and so I was getting in five days a week instead of six or four days instead of five or six and so I sent an email not too long after that to all the people I know that I train with, hey, I need a Monday running partner to keep me accountable. And then we started meeting at, at the time at 6 a.m. at Whole Foods every Monday to to get it done. And that became a part of knocking down these constraints that ultimately led to a season of PRs. I think the year after that, I PR'd every distance from 10K to marathon because I had just simply stopped listening to the bullshit in my head. And then systematically went about going, knocking down these limits. And so this, as you said, it's, it's an exercise kind of like problem solving, but not in the context of the race. It's like problem solving your life constraints, yes. really. 
writing them down, and then systematically attacking the ones that you can attack. You know, in the space of, of trauma, you know, we, we have a lot of data that we have unearthed. Um, a lot of people doing incredibly difficult work with humans who are in, have been gone through significantly traumatic and circumstances from uh, uh, death, rape, terrible, terrible, terrible things happening to them in their environment. We talk about, the, the, and, and many times in that context, all the time in that context, they talk about victim, about being a victim. And I think that, um, I wish there was a, an appropriate way to discuss the victimology of America and how many of us in our worlds, because what you just phrased as a convenient story to tell is really you becoming, being your own victim, is to vic- whatever scenario that you've created, you, you have too much to carry, too much to bear, too much to deal with, instead of saying, well, what do I want? Right. <laughs> right. And reframing that from that perspective is we're all victims. We're all victims of 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 number one, the story our universe, our, our, our current society is telling us, which is not real people. I'm not going to go off on too far a political <laughs> spectrum here. But many of you who know me know like it's this is this this construct that we're currently occupying is convenient. It's not real. It's just convenient. And so looking outside of that and saying what you can control. And again, Low-hanging fruit is the best place to start. But if you want to get to the real meat of overcoming limits, you'll work systematically through those low, that low-hanging fruit to get to the stuff that's a little bit too high for you to reach. And um, at that point in time, I highly recommend that you seek professional counsel in terms of either looking at your life from a, from a, you know, from a psychological standpoint in, in, in some ways or looking at your running with a sports psychologist who's trained in these regards. Um, you and I, Chris, we talk a lot about mental training, and I'm not a big fan of sports psychologists generally. I think that frequently they're opt- opportunistic and they're not practical enough to be really effective for the population that we're working with, which is why this entire podcast really got started. But when you get to the big stuff, when you get to the stuff that's really, really you victimizing yourself about what you might be able to do, get in touch with those who are really good at dealing with this stuff. I have an athlete right now who's getting ready to run. Um, take another stab at a Boston qualifier that has been an elusive goal for her. She's reached it, but the, 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 again, one of my angers about the Boston <laughs> Marathon is they keep changing where that, where that boundary is. And so I know that this will be an incredibly difficult task for her and I am but I also know that she's done some significant work in this regard and we got to the point where I said I've helped you to the point at which I can help now you need professional help Um, and this is a person who's had much professional help in her life for other areas in this area from a psychological perspective so she's a little hesitant to do it but she did it she came away immediately with four to five different things that she and i then can work through to try to create a better strategic plan for her on race day so yes work your low-hanging fruit and work that sort of i'm just not willing to be the athlete i want to be and then when you get to it where you get to the point where you're like i'm not sure i can be the person i want to be then be willing to look look a further afield to some some real help for people who are professionals in this area. Um, you know, I got to spend I get to spend a good bit of time with Lenny Waite, who I, we helped get to the Olympic Games um, at Rio, and um, she's really good at what she does. But I think frequently a lot of what she does doesn't really take advantage of her real skill set. She's frequently dealing with low hanging fruit instead of the big picture stuff. 
one thing that's interesting as we close to me, if you look across these tools, problem solving, resilience training, overcoming limits, a lot of it just starts with a simple decision <laughs> to, again, as you said, not be a victim, but to be proactive in dealing with this, taking stuff head on. And so a lot of what we're talking about with mental training is just bringing that mind frame. If you came and took one, and we got more to come, believe me. I don't. We don't even know how many we have to come, <laughs> to be honest with you. We, this could be an ongoing that never end, right. series that never ends. But we're going to continue to throw at you um, before we'll, we'll end it before we wrap it up. We'll definitely wrap it up, but we could continue to come at you with all of these different, um, weapons, these arrows in our, in our quiver to utilize. If you took one of them and saw it through one training cycle, so one six to nine month training cycle and really worked it from start to finish, I can guarantee you a race result that will be beyond what you thought you were capable of. Don't try to, this is, a, this is an aside as a, don't try all of these at one time. We're giving you a lot of stuff. Come back to this resource. We're not going to take it off the web. It's going to be available. You'll be able to come back and check it. But pick one or two of these that really resonate with you and start working through them. We'll keep adding ones to it, but this is a ready resource for you. One you can come back to at any point in time. And as we say all the time, if you live in the Austin, central Texas area and you're in our neck of the woods, You've got coaches at Rogue who are working through these problems, and we, we actively utilize this, these techniques in, our, in the way that we prepare our athletes. Well, Chris and I certainly do, and we've got training protocols for our, all of our coaches where they'll be going through this stuff to be ready to, to wrestle with these things with you as athletes. So sometimes you need help. Um, don't, don't hesitate. You know, where, you know where we are. You found us here. You can find us physically, too. So we'll, we'll let that wrap it. Thank you, Steve, for kind of jumping into my role. But this has been episode 20, continuing our series on, me on mental training. As always, if you're looking for more information about us, check us out at roguerunning.com or on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Rogue Running. As always, we love talking to you, and we'll catch you next time.